Hey everybody, this is Mike Epstein and welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Today's episode revolves around the topic of ticketing. And here to talk with me is Jeff Kane. Jeff is currently Client Development Manager for Live Nation Ticketmaster for the Central United States region. In addition, Jeff is also the President and Executive Board Chairman at the Civic Music Association in Des Moines. And he's also a board member for Music Under, Under the Stars. Some of the topics we talk about today include how do you determine ticket pricing for major shows? What are some of the links and trends between an artist's number of fans on social media and music streaming services and their ticket pricing? Uh, what are some of the differences between older generations of ticket buyers versus younger millennials? And much more. Jeff was very kind with his time, and I was so happy to have the opportunity to talk to him about this topic. It pertains to a lot of folks in the industry, regardless of what side of the table you're on. So without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Jeff Kane. Hey, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for taking the time. So tell us a little bit about your background as we get started here. How did you, what were you doing prior to working at Live Nation Ticketmaster? I've actually had my whole life an interest in uh, music. I was playing when I was a young child. My grandparents lived with us for quite a while, so we had kind of an extended family, and my grandparents used to play old records, which I remember them having me listen to big band music and other things like that. And I didn't realize till they both passed because I had this just passion for gospel music and, and soul and that type of thing. Uh, I was going through the record collections that were continually going even as I was a young child, and there's Mahala Jackson and things like that. So I've grown up with music around me. Um, I got away from it as far as for, a, for doing it for my work. I was in sales and relationship management for years and years, and then just had the opportunity uh, a few years back to get actually into the industry, which was really exciting because I'm on a number of music boards and have my own band, so it just kind of completed the circle where I could do it for my day-to-day -day work as well. And you, you mentioned you're a musician as well. What do you play? Um, I play reeds. I play uh, saxophone and clarinet. Uh, my main thing is clarinet. I've got a New Orleans jazz band that plays around. We're based in Des Moines, Iowa, but we play around the Midwest. We played five festivals this summer, including the uh, Big Spiderback Festival. We were one of the eight national featured bands there. So, uh, yeah, it keeps me busy. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and we're trying to take uh, the feel of kind of the old traditional jazz to a new audience. We do takes on new tunes as well as uh, new things that are being done. There's some great composers overseas in Europe as well as in um, New Orleans and New York that are doing new things. So we try to have a little bit of all of that and help bring a younger audience to it also. So it's a lot of fun. That sounds like a blast. So, kind of, you know, briefly in general, what what um, what does a client development manager do at Live Nation Ticketmaster for people listening? Yeah, basically, I mean, we're we've uh, split into uh, you know different uh, segments, you know, just as most companies do in that. But basically, my role is to keep uh, keep my clients happy. So we have a full team of people that support. Uh, support our venues that we work with, and uh, I'm the guy who kind of, I guess you could say, the Harry Truman of the buck stops here. So I'm responsible for making sure everything runs smoothly and having really the, the good relationship with the general managers of those uh, venues that we work with. 
Got it. And you're based in the Midwest, correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah. So, you know, I'm always interested in how artists determine uh, ticket pricing for their shows or how their teams determine that. How? What's your experience like with that, and how how do you ultimately determine that when when a show is being um, you know worked on prior to going yeah. on sale? Yeah, absolutely, and I I can speak in generalities on that, um, and I don't know that it varies too much, you know, all the way from because I have kind of a unique perspective. I've got my own band that does things at a club level, does regional festivals. I'm on um, Civic Music Association where we met. Um, where we present a great jazz, uh, and I've done that for like 90 years. And then I work with these larger tours that, that come through and see those. So I think even at all levels though, quite honestly, if you look at it at its, you know, at its highest level, ticket pricing really is somewhat of a guess, I guess you could say. Um, you know, it, many times, like in the smaller venues, for example, an artist may have, you know, a certain dollar amount that they want when they're touring, if they're on routing that they need, so they can, you know, work something at the door, percent of door, or if they're well enough, good enough, and they feel they have enough crowd, they can get a certain guarantee. But generally, you see those ticket prices at the smaller venues in a general steady range that it doesn't get out of. Um, even as you get into, you know, moving up to the larger touring acts and things, um, they're trying to base it on past experience that they've seen, you know, how well has the tour done? Did we sell out? Did we not sell out? What was the ticket pricing at? And again, it's somewhat of a crapshoot. We can talk a little later here. There is more and more data behind, I think, making decisions, but really it's, it's, you know, kind of determining what you think kind of a finger in the wind almost based on past experience of, you know, where that ticketing is going to be. Should we put it up? you know, X percent or X dollars, or did this market sell out? Did this market not sell out? So, I mean, they even may want to do it unique by market, but that's, you know, the promoter. But generally, you know, the artist, too, is driving that. And there's some artists I know that have toured that, you know, don't want a ticket above X amount of dollars for their people to get in. Or there have even been some that have said, uh, as you look at national tours, hey, I'm coming out and I want to have it at X price for everybody. So it's really kind of all over the board, but generally, you know, the artist is driving that, but, you know, along with their promoter and whoever else, manager, agent, it's it's still not an exact science. You know, it's really trying to figure out where it is. And those concerts that do really well and sell out right away, maybe they could have charged more, right? But it becomes the question of, does the artist want to charge more or should they have charged more? And, you know, how do you approach that pricing because there are some things we can talk about that are coming up now that help to make pricing a little more exact from what it has. Yeah. My experience has been like at at the smaller club level that generally a promoter or the talent buyer, whoever is there will, will actually ask my input. What do you think we should price this at? Um, Mm -hmm. Where, but contrast that with working with larger Performing arts centers, for example, which then you're, you're, you're getting into the soft ticket world, but even there with their pricing, rarely am I asked for input. You know, it's kind of, here's what right. we're proposing. This is what we think will work and it's, it's multi-tiered or whatever. 
Um, but yeah, I've always found that kind of interesting that if we're trying to do club dates, you know, they're, uh, my, they're kind of looking to me for guidance if, if, and wherever we have the uh, history, like you were saying earlier, we'll definitely kind of look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, what, can you explain just for people listening who might not be aware, what is dynamic ticket pricing? Yeah, dynamic ticket pricing, it's probably, Easiest to talk an analogy, okay, if that's all right, because I think it really helps drive the point home. So let's take a different business. Let's say that, um, Mike, you and I are going to meet each other. We're in different, we're in the same city, let's assume, and we're going to take a trip and you and I are going to go down to Mexico. Going to have a little fun over spring break. And so we're going to book our ticket, right? So when, when we go and do that and we go in to buy that seat, we figure out, you know, when we want to leave, what time, uh, you know, assuming we're on the same airline, even same flight, uh, we choose what seat we want, right, based on our preferences and availability allows us to do that. And then we go through and then it gives us a price. And so we're like, yeah, okay, I want to go. I, I'm, I'm going to pay that price. So you go in, buy the ticket. You and I end up <clears throat> next to each other on the flight going down there as well as the other people all around us. Um, do you think those people pay the same price for that ticket, that airline ticket? That's the leading <laughs> question. I mean, the answer Probably is no. Not. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and generally, you know, because of that, people, you know, I don't look at you and say, hey, Mike, this was great. Hey, how much did your ticket cost to go down? You know, because I'm more worried about getting down to Mexico. We kind of know – how that business model and that pricing works, right? So everyone's kind of okay with that. Um, ticketing has been different in that generally, especially if you're talking, well, even in clubs, because you could have general admissions, some reserves, some VIP, same same with larger uh, arenas and things. You can have different pricing tiers. But those are determined, again, based on, you know, where the artist wants to put those types of things with a promoter. Sometimes it's, you know, if you're a co-pro with, Whoever you're working with is determining how much, you know, they want to need, make, where do we need to put the pricing. So it's kind of this give and take, but there's pretty much a defined price in a section, a predetermined price, if you may. What dynamic ticketing does is it takes what's being done in the airlines and it's saying, okay, we know that there's a concert, it's a ABC band that's coming through that everybody likes. But we really have no idea what the demand is, right? How much are people willing to pay? How many people are going to come out? So what dynamic pricing does is it uses those same algorithms, if you may, that the airline industries do. And based on, you know, demand and everything else, the ticket pricing will fluctuate based on how much demand there is or, you know, when people are buying that type of thing. So you and I, in that same example, if we were going to see this ABC band, at this arena and we bought seats, we could end up next to each other, just like on the airplane. And rather than being in that same section as current pricing would be, we both paid, let's just throw out a round number, $50 each for our seats. We could have paid very different amounts depending on what we bought, um, you know, what was going on at the time, because just like the airlines, those algorithms are trying to uh, determine what the best pricing is. Yeah, that makes sense. Is dynamic ticket pricing generally used for most major acts or is it, 
like half the time or I'm just trying to get a sense of, um, you know, is it more common than you would think or what? How does it yeah, work I, as far as, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't have industry statistics, but there's more and more, um, you know, groups looking to use that. Again, it just depends on, you know, the situation and the artist and, you know, what they want to accomplish and, you know, how they interact with their fan base. Um, you know, there's just a lot of different things that, that play into that of whether or not someone's going to offer that up. But, you know, compared to where it was, which was zero, um, there's more and more, um, it's being done more and more as, as things continue on. I think you'll probably continue to see more of that as, as time goes on and people get more used to that. Earlier, you started to allude to certain things that are being used or to help determine ticket pricing. Is that? Can you talk a little bit about what those things are? Sure. I think um, that you know, ticketing industry and entertainment in general, just like every other business, um, you know, everything's going to big data. I mean, you know, how much information can you get on um, who's interested or purchasing your product so you can make better decisions, right, better business decisions, um, help get to the right people, help uh, help whoever's purchasing your product have better experiences or offerings, that sort, sort of thing. So with the advent of, um, at least in ticketing anyways, you're seeing generally in the industry, um, you know, for years everyone had paper tickets. Um, you know, again, Mike, you and I would go to a concert. We each have a paper ticket. Years ago, <clears throat> I'm dating myself. So I used to uh, ticket take an usher at a at a venue, and we'd do the carrying the stubs and have to count you know the tickets to the ticket counts and the settlements the old way. Then they went the tickets, but had barcodes, which everyone's used to now. So you know you get kind of an electronic count on things. But what you're still dealing with when you think about that is at point of purchase, which you know most some people will still go to venues, but generally most people will purchase over the phone or now on the internet or on the smartphone, um, just like they would other things. Um, we know who, let's say that you and I are going to the concert together, Mike, and we're taking two friends. We know that if you're purchasing the tickets on your credit card, we know that, Mike, that you purchased the ticket, right? And it's still a manual ticket that we have in our hands. So when you and I are going into that concert and we're going in, it scans the tickets, you know, it knows that they're valid tickets, right, because we've bought them. And the four of us get in there, but really all that um, that venue or that artist knows is that uh, Mike Epstein bought four tickets for ABC show, right, the ABC artist. With the advent of technology and more and more people uh doing things through mobile and ticketing, moving to mobile, which is a, a newer thing generally. Um, <clears throat> when someone will purchase a ticket um, and they have it on their mobile phone, generally a lot of uh, companies now will allow you to transfer those to people also electronically on your phone. So what happens, Mike, is let's say that you and I are going in again with those two friends, there's four of us. Uh, you have the tickets, and rather than having physical tickets, you have them on your phone. We're all not going to be able to make it there at the same time to get in. So you can just transfer those to us on our phone. So we have a valid ticket with an ID on our phone that can be scanned and we can get into the auditorium. So what that's allowed um, 
again, venues and artists and that, is that rather than knowing that Mike was in the concert, I know that Mike was in the concert, and you forwarded so that Jeff was in the concert, and our two friends were in the concert. So it, it allows you to really see who is actually attending and going in there, and that increases, you know, your base, again, big data of people who you know are interested in that artist and that you can reach out to in the future when that artist is coming, knowing that they may purchase tickets or they may get them for other people or, you know, even though they weren't the purchaser of it, you were. But, again, it's using that um, technology and that data to better get to the people who are actually going and are fans of that ABC, you know, artist that came in and played that evening. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I definitely noticed the the um, upshot of that or the downside, depending on who you're talking to. But, yeah, um, exactly. The like anything else. In my, yeah, in my inbox, for example, getting – getting um concert listings from Live Nation and I've always wondered, am I obviously I'm seeing what's in my area in my city, but I've also wondered, am I also is it is it somewhat more selective than just location? Is it um location plus based on your past ticket you know, your your past concert experiences, it's more of a curated uh here's who's coming through type of thing. And yeah, I would imagine what you're describing is is what's making that possible. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Well, there's this people can elect in, um, and you know, on most, uh, you know, for example, on our ticketing site, you can go in and you can choose who your favorites are, um, mm-hmm. so that we can provide those push notifications to you. Like, I like ABC performer, you know, and I like, you know, John Smith or whoever the performer is, the artist, and then as they're touring. Um, it will push that to you if they're going to be in your general kind of geographic area so that, because a lot of times it's really interesting. People don't realize even someone that they like is coming to town or is in town because everyone has busy lives, right? And depending on where you're looking for things and, you know, newspapers are kind of going away, that business model is drastically changing. People want content online, but uh, newspapers used to be a way locally too where you'd see concerts and things like that. But that's pretty much going away too. So, um, it's just one way again to get information to you of something that you might want to see and having that pushed to you rather than having to search for it so that it's easy to go, oh wow, I didn't know they were in town. That's great. I'm going to buy tickets or I'm going to go to that. Right. Have you noticed or is there, is there sort of a direct link now? This might be an obvious question, but um, between an artist's data, and when I say data, I mean social media data, music streaming data, you know, all things digital that, that creates numbers for them. Is there a link between all of that and their ticket pricing? Are people confidently able to price a show by saying, based on my number of followers here, here, and here, we should do this? Or is it even given that data, it's still doesn't quite translate to the ticket sales? And what's, what are you seeing with that? Yeah, I, I think the answer is it depends, again. Um, yeah. You've got, you know, depending who's running the tour, what access they have to data. There are some tools out there and some companies that um, aggregate that data for you, you know, based on, you know, number of Spotify plays and, you know, how, how many Facebook followers you have, Instagram, those types of things, and, you know, can, you know, determine – 
not necessarily who's going to come in that, that instance, but, you know, what type of a following you have, like, like how hot is it in that general area for people for that type of artist. So there are companies that do that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. I'm just curious who who, um, who are some of those companies because I'm always curious about potential tools like that that artists can use. Do you happen to know? Yeah, you know, I don't. For purposes of this, since I'm on the road here, I do not have that in front of me. But I know there's. Yeah. Uh, I know of at least one that I can get you after the call here that uh, that does that that uh, you know, pulls that yeah. together and stuff. But I know there's a number of them out there that that do do that and you know, charge a you know. A subscription fee or fee for that for doing that type of thing. Yeah, okay. We'll uh, post that in the show notes. Okay. Let's, let's talk about the buying habits of of um, ticket of, uh, concert attendees for just a second. What are some of the differences between ticket buyers who are from an older generation and, and a young and versus like younger millennials? Is, is it that different or what are some of the things that you've seen between the two generations? Yeah, this is just me personally. Um, again, cause, you know, I've kind of seen it as you know the club level, mid level, and then with you know the bigger arenas and stuff. Um, and, and this is obviously a general generalization. Um, I think you know cell phone usage and even smartphones has become somewhat ubiquitous now. Um, I haven't seen the latest numbers, but I think it's like eighty-five percent you know, penetration. So. I have an older father who's almost in his 90s now, his mid-80s, and, you know, we've finally got him to use a smartphone, that type of thing. So, you know, I think older people, you know, are using technology, the older generation. Um, I, I just think that, uh, especially in even going down, you know, millennials obviously use it, love it. You know, they'd love to have everything online. They'd love to have ticketing. They want to have all that stuff on their phone. Um, there's certain people and, you know, kind of probably the percentage goes up with age, I would say, um, that still don't necessarily trust technology per se. So aren't quite as comfortable having, you know, things, for example, on their smartphone or doing that versus going in. I mean, there's still people for concerts that like to go to the box office, you know, even for on sales where, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're wanting to truly get in on an on sale, you know, you want to be online, right? Everything's, especially for a big concert, eating up quickly, and you want to be in line, virtual line, to get in, get good tickets. Whereas if you're at a box office, you know that's tickets are being bought quickly when you're when you're sitting there. So just in general, you know, it does kind of go with age. You know, the older folks are tending to use technology, but they're not quite as trusting of it, I guess you could say. Whereas you know, the younger generation. You know, pretty much is wants everything on there because it's just more convenient. They have it have access to everything there. It's all, you know, in line. They've been used to since they're young having everything on Google Cloud and everything else. So this falls right into that generational thing. Yeah, one thing that I, I think about a lot because I kind of deal with it a lot is, you know, working with, going back to what I was talking about earlier, some of the differences between working with performing arts centers and and clubs, um, the audience is, is one of the main differences. <laughs> and the way the audience, this is kind of tying into what you were just talking about, but the way the audience experiences both the concert and also getting to the concert is so different. And mm-hmm. performing arts centers traditionally, 
launch their their following season, um, you know, months in advance, but it's booked, you know, 12 to 18 months in advance. And a lot of that is due to the model of um, the subscription series and having everything go to mm-hmm. print early versus not having any of that and being able to just add shows uh, online. And I'm Absolutely. and I wondered, yeah, and I just think about down the road when the current, uh, you know, the baby boomers are retiring and the majority of these gray-haired performing arts center audiences are are gone. Will the current generation of concert goers, the younger generation, ultimately move into those spots? Or you know, it's like how does that? It's kind of interesting to think about. And then if that happens, are they going to naturally? adapt to the older model <laughs> or mm-hmm. will, you know, this all kind of remains to be seen. And I think you, you're starting to see some performing arts centers experiment with this, whether it's we're going to, um, we're going to market differently to try to attract younger audiences uh, by nature of who we're presenting um, or how we reach them or all of that. But, you know, it's definitely something that's going to create a lot of, change going forward is that anything you've started to see on your end absolutely and i i, I can talk uh i'm on the board of a uh, presenter in des moines that does uh pop and jazz and classical civic music association it's been around for 95 years and they do the subscription model like you said and it's older audience right that does that um the concerts in the season are booked well, well in advance, you know, 18 months to two years at least. Um, and it's, you know, it kind of lowers the risk a little bit too because they know they have this core of people that are going to go to their events. You know, people have kind of bought into that. They know that, you know, they're going to see things that are good there, right? They come in. Um, the, we've tried it actually, try to get um, some acts and other things and get the younger generation interested. And to your point, um, you know, what we've seen just anecdotally is, um, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to buy a subscription or something. They want to go to individual events that are of interest to them. So it's, it's more the, uh, the club model. Like you said that, Hey, I'll go, but you know, you could get something and get it in routing and it's going to be there in a month. And if I like it, I'll go, but I'm not going to buy a subscription for something a year and a half, two years from now in your season because I, I just don't know what I'm going to be doing. Or, you know, I, I want to have the flexibility to go if I want to go, depending on what else is going on in my life. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I think that's going to – that's something that a lot of, uh, you know, organizations, like I said, like the one that I'm on locally are really struggling with because that group that loves that subscription model is getting older and those younger generations aren't necessarily buying up those subscriptions, even if it's like they used to do full seasons. Now, I know us and others do things where you can pick three or something or whatever that number is out of the season, try to get, you know, some people to, you know, go there for certain things that they may like, but that's that's continuing to erode away. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing the same thing you were talking about. Yeah, I guess it really just kind of remains to be seen what is going to work and keep those people in the seats, or keep new people in the seats, I should say. Yeah, and I well, think ultimately it comes yeah, down to the 
challenge, like you said, which we've kind of been, you know, talking around a little bit is, you know, knowing your market, knowing your audience and promoting in the right acts, right? Which is an art in itself. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, because there may be things that you like if you're on a board or you're, you know, running a club or whatever it is. And people would love this, but that's an emotive thing and people don't always love what you love. Or there may be amazing artists because we've experienced this again with the arts group I'm on. And, and I can throw it out there. We had a season where um, we had four jazz acts. Uh, Joey D. Francesco, who was amazing and well-known organist. Uh, we had Bria Skonberg, who was like our rising star, who's a trumpet player in New York City. And then we also had uh, Gregory Porter and Cecile McLaurin-Savant. And we had about a half full audience for Cecile and Greg. I mean, it was just mind-boggling to us that people wouldn't know. But what we found out after that for our market in Des Moines, where we're based in Des Moines, Iowa, was even though those two, and most people know Cecile, this was like four years ago, but, you know, there were these rising incredible people. They didn't have a long history, so people didn't know their names necessarily mm-hmm. that followed jazz closely. And they just didn't come, you know, even with all the, we were trying not just see them, we were doing content with video and links and things like that. But um, it's always a challenge because you get surprises like that where you think, wow, who wouldn't go to this? And, you know, the people went were amazed, but there's a lot of people that didn't go. Yeah, the awareness just wasn't there for, because they were new artists. Mm-hmm. Let's for our market. topics yeah. for a second. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of curious how we've talked about technology as far as big data and everything, but what about, are, what are you seeing? How is, how is technology starting to affect the way that venues create experiences for patrons? Is that something you have experience with or have you started to see not, not just the change from uh, tickets being on phones, but but actual actual part of the live experience. Like maybe yeah, for example, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one thing I'm thinking about is I'm seeing more venues or festivals or both experiment with augmented reality, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Like, is that are you seeing more and more people doing that, or how does that play in? to the experience, and also, does that actually affect the way people price tickets? Because if you're a venue and you're presumably paying for more technology to create a bigger experience, are you somehow, you know, are you look, are you ultimately charging more for tickets as part of that experience? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. It's kind of a, I, I think we're in the middle of it, so it's kind of hard to say. Um, but just for an example, I'd go back. I know the first concerts I went to when I was young. The first concert I went to was at Red Rocks, Boss Skaggs, which was an amazing place to see your first concert. But it was just the music, you know. It was mm-hmm. the band and everybody was engaged. And, you know, that's the way it was for years. And then, you know, the initial technological advances, I'll go forward a little bit. I remember seeing Sticks at an auditorium in, like, the early 80s. And they had lasers. So, you know, we were all going crazy. 
I mean, now people would laugh at it because there's just, you know, a few little lasers they had going around and everyone's like, oh, they got lasers. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give a little bit of context to it. So, you know, now you go to, to most, you know, large concerts and, um, you know, they've got the stage and obviously the lights, you know, especially for bigger ones, but, you know, you've got the big video screen. And a lot of that in, you know, the bigger venues or even some of the uh, amphitheaters and things is just so uh, people can see, right? You know, they're used to, you know, having a great, you know, high-definition TV, everything else. And even if there's this, you know, say, amphitheater that's like 4,000 people, but, you know, Willie Nelson or whoever's performing is, you know, like five inches tall from where they're standing, people want to see that. So, you know, technology has been leveraged, I think, standardly now as compared to when I first went to a concert uh, a lot differently. Augmented reality is is an interesting thing, and I I don't really know where that's going to go. My thought is, personally, um, it may be selective, um, only from the perspective that I think at some point there's, there's a fulcrum point where it's it's not going to enhance the live experience, and it might be something that would take away from it. Uh, you know, like being present in the moment. And there's still a few artists that travel that you know won't allow you to take pictures or videos as you're there because they want you to be present and kind of in the moment and remember it as a special thing rather than posting it to your friends on social media. Whereas others are like, we want it out there. We want everybody to see our music that doesn't know. We want it on Instagram. We want it on Facebook. So I, I think it's really in flux, and I'm not sure. I think it may be more of a, you know, a, something that might be done in limited circumstances, but I'm not sure it would be something that's going to be big. But I'd have probably said that about video screens when I, you know, after my first two concerts. So. I don't remember which festival it was, or, or but I, I wasn't there. I was reading about this. And there were multiple stages, and you could hold your phone up in, in front of the stage, and it, you would get information about the artist that was playing, or you would also get information about the next artist on that stage, like directly mm-hmm. on your phone, just kind of from holding it up. Yeah. But yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, I think there's there's obviously a fine line between how does this enhance the actual experience, and and or is this too much? One thing that just came to mind while you were talking about that is. Obviously, we've talked exclusively about ticketing and, and the music world, but of course, ticketing and sports, ticketing and other types of entertainment is just as huge. And um, I was thinking when you were just when you were talking about this that uh, I was watching a recent Dave Chappelle Netflix special, and mm-hmm. one of the things I've never seen him live. I would love to, but one of the things he's notorious for is you can't when you go to the show they they take your phone. <laughs> So yes, they do. You, they do. Yeah, and I, and I don't think he's the only one that does that. I, I think, you know, other people do that as well. But, um, you know, that just immediately came to mind when we were talking about this. It's like, you know, there. Are, to your point, there are artists who um, want to make sure the experience is protected. And from a comedian standpoint, you do not want your material out there before. You know, in this case, it was a shooting for a Netflix show, so you you know you need to wait till it actually comes out. Um, but yeah, I thought it was worth mentioning because um, there is still an entire area there where the, the phone doesn't even come into play. Yeah, and I, I think you bring up a great point, too, because, you know, we were 
kind of focusing on music, right? But if you're talking entertainment in general, which is, you know, much broader, um, and especially sports, um, I, I, I could see a lot of applicability there, you know, from the perspective of, um, you know, I'll just use my dad as an example. When we used to go to baseball games, he would do the old, I don't even know if people know how to do it now, but he'd have the old the sheets out where he'd do, you know, made a hit, how far you went, you know, did you get on air? So he'd have all the stats that he'd mm-hmm. take during the game. Um, I think there's, especially in sports maybe versus music, and there's applicability in music too, but um, people like to know things right away, especially, I know, like I'm a big basketball fan, I love uh, the, the uh, March Madness, and I went to Drake University in Iowa, still support the team, but an example of sports there, I'm always looking at the scoreboard, right? How many rebounds right. do they have? How many points do they have? So if, you know, I could see a lot of applicability in sports with people because even though you're there, it is kind of data-driven and you want to know that. Maybe have, you know, things pushed to your phone, that type of thing. Because we're always sometimes even looking stuff on ESPN, you know, that type of thing on our phones. Like, how are they doing? That guy's pretty good. How much did he score, you know, or is he a big score? Having so, all those... Yeah, being able to access all those stats in real time as you watch would certainly be appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. All right. Um, just going back to ticketing and pricing for a minute, um, I'm curious. I mean, what advice would you give to an independent artist who's trying to think about how to price ticket for the price tickets for their fans? How does you know, how, how should, if I'm an independent artist, how should I think about that? Yeah, well, there's, there's a number of working parts for that. Um, right. I think this is probably one of the most, you know, I've kind of talked in the past. It's a really amazing time to be an independent artist because in the past, you know, you'd have to get a record label and then that would give you, you know, money to get an album out. And, you know, that if that was successful, you could continue on. Well, you know, anybody pretty much now. I mean, people do recording in their homes with Pro Tools and stuff, which, you know, are pretty darn good recording. And there's all kinds of, you know, recording studios in all the towns and social media with Facebook, with Instagram, with everything else. And you can produce things and get on to Spotify if you go through distributors like CD Baby, put your stuff out there and they'll get it out to all the streaming services. So I think as an independent artist starting out and touring, um, there's a lot less barrier to entry than there used to be where you can get your stuff out there. So then it becomes a question, um, if someone's going out, especially if they're just starting out on the club circuit is, you know, what do you want to, what do you want to do? How, how much do you need to eat? Right. Um, mm. you know, how much do you need to make on the tour in general? If you look at a portfolio, like, Hey, we're stopping this one place, you know, we just need to get, you get by for the day. But the next, this other place we know is, you know, really hot. We know a lot of people like this kind of music. Maybe we can charge more. We can make more money off of it. So I think, you know, and I'm just talking about that too, looking at it on the smaller scene, kind of with my own band, um, having been in my past life in a lot of, uh, helped with a lot of sales, growing a lot of organizations, upstarts, that type of thing. I look at when we play or when we tour, as a portfolio. So I might, for example, if something was really important, and, you know, this isn't the play for exposure thing I'm talking about, but if there was, say, a festival that we really wanted to be in, 
I wouldn't want pricing to be an issue. Maybe I take the less than I typically would for that or, you know, that barely covers our expenses, but then another one I'll take where they're willing to pay or something that's a corporate gig where people are going to see us. I'll take that and I'll try to make more money on it so I can look at it as a portfolio for that tour, if you may. So I know I've talked to, uh, you know, some friends that, that do this that are amazing players and kind of independently represent themselves. And we've kind of had those discussions, you know, you got to look at the whole, the whole thing to determine what you're going to price and how much you need, you know, for that tour to get by. Is it, is it an exposure? Cause I've had guys who it's been, we want to get our name out there. So they're more just, you know, can we have a place to stay? We make a little bit of money and then others are like, you know, I'm doing this and this is my only job and we've decided to go with this group. That's totally different. So you're going to want to try to price and get as much as you can because that's, that's your job and you don't have any other bands or other things holding up your income. So I know that's a long answer, but it, it kind of depends on what that band's focus is and what they're trying to accomplish. Right. And then the, the interesting thing, too, is that depending on where the artist is at in their career, whether they're starting out or mid-level or you know, a top headlining act, it's always different. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, that it's it's so dynamic as far as where are we playing and, you know, all the factors that go into it. Um, so I think it's interesting to think about and talk about just to kind of, you know, kind of wrap up how we started this conversation thinking about how data is playing into everything. Um, you know, it, yeah, I, it, I, I found it really interesting that one of your comments was, you know, it's still not, it, it's still, um, far from an exact science despite all the data that's out there. It really, it, it's not, it's, um, I think you said it best. I mean, you just, you're kind of starting over every time and it's just not, uh, the same every time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the most interesting things, I think, and this is, you know, public knowledge, I'm not, you know, talking out of turn on this, but I, I think one of, one of the most amazing entertainers I've seen in person, um, whether or not you like the genre or not, and probably one of the smartest business people in how they've done things is Garth Brooks. Hmm. Um, kind of going back to your question, um, cause when he first started, you know, gaining speed, right? Getting exposure and he became big fairly quickly. It wasn't overnight, if you know his story, but I mean, when he really started getting popular and he went off on his first tour years ago in the nineties, um, you know, some artists would say, Hey, you know, I'm popular. I'm going to make a lot of money on this. You know, I want to you know, charge as much as I can or get back to price. Right? Like, um, he wanted it to be accessible for everybody. And I don't, I don't remember the price, right? But let me just throw out something for example. So say, he said, I want a $17 ticket for everything because he was smart. He knew people, you know, wanted to come see him, but he wanted to have it affordable so that they'd bring their kids. So as an artist and as a continued, uh, artist and person moving forward, he had families there that had young kids. Guess who's going to his concerts now? Right, multi generation. I mean, it was it was it was amazing because you know no other artist really had thought of that. But you know, when you go back now and look at that, you're like, that was just genius. 
you know, because that was kind of his first tour. But, you know, when you think of the live experience, and there have been studies done on the scientific studies when you're there, and this was kind of back our being in the moment thing and how much data do you need. I'm talking more, you know, music versus sports. But um, it the the music and the experiences people are doing that where they, you know, hook them up and things, it actually changes brain waves and how your cells interact and things. And that's part of, you know, people getting that experience live that you can't get elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Those kids experience that rather than, I mean, they heard the records and whatever at their parents' house, but they actually saw this live thing and experienced it. And then they're going now, they're taking their kids. So I think just as an example, as an artist or someone who was trying the first time, that was just genius. I mean, what he did there, looking back at it. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Yeah, that's that's a really good example of how to think long term about what all this means. Yeah, that was for your fans. And that was yeah, the long term really cool. look. Yep, yep. Very cool. Well, Jeff, I think this might be a good point to kind of wrap up here. Um, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day this morning to talk to me. And I, you know, we have never. I was excited to do this because we've never done an episode focusing on ticketing, and I think mm-hmm. you provided a lot of good examples of, of, you know, kind of what's going on and how to think about pricing and, and all the stuff we covered. I, I really appreciate you taking the time this morning. You bet, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, you bet. I hope we get to see each other soon. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to, we'll have to get together soon. Yep. Safe travels. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Bye.